all right? Matthew chapter 1. Uh, we're going to be looking at uh, verses 18 through 25, kind of finishing up uh, chapter 1 here. So if you weren't here last week, I encourage you to go back and, and listen to the genealogy of Jesus. That's what we talked about last year. Some of us braved the weather and got out and we're here. It's a great, sweet time. Uh, but it just kind of launches us in our series of what we're trying to get after and what we're talk, talking about in Matthew. And, and so today we're looking at, I, 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 probably for most of us, a familiar story. Uh, but just praying that God would surprise us uh, today. So if you're able, I encourage you to stand with me in honor of reading God's word. The passage is also on the screen or in our little bulletin. There's a, a black Bible in front of you in that rack. So uh, I think on my page it's 870. Zero, 70. That's what it is. There you go. So you can go there. It's somewhere close. All right. So, all right. Here we go. Hear the word of the Lord. So the birth of Jesus Christ came about this way. After his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. And so her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. But after he had considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David... Don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And she will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now all of this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 7. See or behold, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will, call, they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated, God is with us. And then Joseph woke up, and he did as the Lord's angel had commanded him. He married her, but he did not have sexual relations with her until she gave birth to a son. And he named him Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we're just asking for your help today. Lord, we're asking that you would take a familiar story and surprise us. And at the same time, disorient us, Lord. May you use your word to, to in some, some way, Lord, wake us up to what is true, to what is real. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So as most of you know, I, I, I have four boys, or we have four boys, like it's not an I in the sense that I made it happen, amen? Uh, there wasn't any kind of miracle, uh, just normal husband and wife, right? So, so we, that's too much for us, right? Now we have four boys, uh, and in case you don't know who they are, because, you know, they kind of come to both services periodically, and so some of you may not know who are my boys, you kind of can tell, because Unfortunately, they look a lot like me. I feel bad for them. Uh, they look a whole lot better than I do, amen. So, um, so yeah, these are a, a couple of pictures from our vacation we took this past year. So we went down to a little amusement park, Knobles. Anybody familiar with the Knobles? You know what I'm talking about? One. All right, man, you guys are missing out, I'm telling you. So I'm just, I'm just giving a little plug for Knobles. Not that I'm getting 
any financial compensation for saying this, right? But if you're kind of in the age range where your kids are a little five and above or four and above, I'm telling you this amusement park is amazing. It's like a blast in the past. I mean, it is so much fun and so enjoyable. Actually, the Food Network did like a whole special on the food within this park because it's so good. I mean, it's it's not good for you, right? You're going to gain some weight there, amen, right? You're not counting calories during that week you're there because their food is absolutely phenomenal. And so we, this is our third time that we've been, been there. And this was one of those years where it's kind of like our perfect age for all of our kids. It was just a, a lot of fun. And so that's a, a picture of kind of like in the music park where you get them in a frame and uh, right next to them is kind of the mascot of Knobles, which I think is a, I thought it was a squirrel, but I could be wrong. So don't, I don't know what it is. I can't remember. It might be a chipmunk or I can't remember what that picture was. Doesn't matter. Um, and then the other picture is we uh, took a day and went about three hours east and went to Philadelphia. And if you recognize that, that's where they signed the, the Declaration of Independence right behind there. Obviously, it won't let you get in there and walk around and touch stuff. Uh, but that was uh, kind of a, a highlight, not really, I take it back, the highlight of Philadelphia and the highlight of this entire trip, and I tried to show a picture of this, but it didn't come together, is we went to a, a local joint in one of the neighborhoods in Philadelphia and got a legit Philly cheesesteak, and it was phenomenal. I mean, absolutely. It wasn't made with cheese whiz. It was absolutely amazing it was so good man that like there's a line out the door and it's in the middle of the week it's like oh my gosh it's so so that's all they think about or talk about this trip was awesome we went to Philly cheese steak and so um but we did tour some of the the you know the historical stuff there and so just so you know who these kiddos are so far left uh looking at the philadelphia picture that's michael bryan he's 19 in college uh the next one is conlon he's 12 he's a seventh grader uh, next guy is Davin. He's my 10-year-old. Uh, he's in the fifth grade. And then the one on the far right is Joseph, who weighs like 40 pounds and six foot five. And so, uh, but he's, he's 17 years old. Very thankful for them, and they're a real blessing uh, in my life. But what I've discovered, and, and, and this is true, I would say, even if you're not a parent and if you're not married, like, this is true in any kind of relationship. What I've discovered is... Um, in the 19 years, like, we live with them all the time, right? Well, one, it's kind of part-time because he's in college. But, you know, we, we get breaks here and there, but we're with them all the time. And what I've learned in the 19 years that we've been living together, so to speak, is that as I have gotten to know them, I have also gotten to know something about me. So as I have um, learned a lot about my boys and who they are and, and invested in this relationship, I've also learned a lot about myself. And you can say that in any relationship you have that has significance in your life. It can be your spouse. It can be a really good friend. It's, it's kind of a two-way knowing, isn't it? So as you're getting to know them, you're also getting to know something about you. So as a parent, unfortunately, it's usually not real flattering what you get to know about yourself, Right? start seeing a lot of things in you that you didn't know were there until you had kids. You realize how real impatient you are. You realize how selfish you are. You realize how you're a routine guy. You don't like it when someone messes up your routine by needing something or getting sick. You know, all these things come to light because you're in a relationship with these boys and or I'm in a relationship with these boys or and your children also. And, and, and at the same time, there's also... There's also redeeming things you find out about yourself. Like, I, like 
I would have not known that I have this capacity to love them the way that I love them. Like it's, it's, it's beyond knowledge. Like you can't even fully comprehend how much love you have for your own kids until you engage in that relationship with them. So all, all I'm trying to say here, and it's, I'm not trying to leave out anybody that's single here, because you can apply this in any friendship. As you get to know someone, you're also getting to know yourself. It's a two-way knowledge. Now what we see here in this passage of Scripture, specifically in the first two chapters of Matthew, is that Matthew has chosen to take um, five little narratives about uh, sort of the, the birth of Jesus. That's what he's done here. Because in chapter 3, all of a sudden, Jesus is an adult. So of all the stories that Matthew could have told about kind of the early years of Jesus, G Matthew has specifically chosen five. And there's a little word called fulfill or fulfillment that is connecting all five of these stories. So I'll, I'll run through these. And if you've got your own Bible, you can look as I run through these real quick. So the first one, obviously, is the one we just got done reading is what we're going to talk about where Joseph and Mary and all that whole situation, the Bible's very strange. Uh, so that's happening here at the end. That's one narrative. The second narrative is when the wise men visit Jesus, which we'll look at next week, which is the first part of chapter 2. The third narrative is where the angel comes to Joseph and Mary and says, hey, you need to get out of, you need to leave here and go to Egypt. The fourth narrative is where Herod, you know, you know, like, gives an edict to have a genocide. All the boys two years and younger are to be slaughtered. And then the fifth narrative that, Matthew chooses to use is when angel comes to Joseph again while he's in Egypt and says, hey, you can come back to Israel and actually you can be in Nazareth because Herod has died. So, so Matthew has specifically chosen those five narratives and using this word fulfillment to connect them all. And the reason why he uses this word fulfillment is basically saying, hey, I'm finding places in the Old Testament that are connecting to us and helping us see who Jesus is. So it's not that um, some people believe this. It's not that that Matthew is finding these kind of prophecies in the Old Testament and then making up the story of Jesus. No, no. There is an historical reality of eyewitnesses, including Matthew, of who Jesus is and what he's done. And in essence, what Matthew is doing here, he's kind of putting on his Jesus glasses and then reading the Old Testament from that lens. And it's almost like, oh, that makes sense. That's who they're talking about. That's who they're pointing to. Oh, that's what Isaiah, that's who he's meaning when he talks about this, a virgin will be born. He's putting on kind of his Jesus glasses and finding all of these little gems in the Old Testament that is explaining more and more about the story of Jesus. And so what Matthew is doing here in this chapter that we're going to look at in just a minute, and what he does in all these little narratives is this, is he is teaching us something about Jesus. He's giving us a, a knowledge about Jesus. He's answering this question, who is he? And then by answering this question, who is Jesus, he is also inviting you and me to say, okay, then who am I? So what Matthew is doing here is that as you get to know Jesus, you simultaneously are getting to know something about yourself. And if you choose to reject who Jesus is, then the knowledge of who you are will be very superficial. Because Jesus is the one who created you 
and sustained you and knit you together in your mother's womb. And so as I learn and know something about him, I'm also learning something about myself. And that's what we're after here because that's what Matthew's after. And so we're going to kind of camp out in verses 21 or 22 to 23 because that's where the big claim about who Jesus is gets landed for Matthew. But I want to make sure we're we're all kind of getting the context of this. And I know this is a familiar story, but I want to make sure all of us are sort of on the same page here before we get to this massive claim that, that Matthew makes about Jesus. So look what he says here starting in verse 18. So the birth of Jesus Christ. And remember, this is the same word. Birth is the same word that's used for genealogy in verse 1 of chapter 1. So Matthew's helping us see something here that this is a new beginning a new start. So this is the, the genesis, so to speak. It's a literal translation of the word here. This is the genesis or the birth of Jesus Christ came about this way. So after his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. And so her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. And so, so we're all kind of on the same page here, all right? This is, this is what's going on here. I, you know, in this uh, translation here, the CSB chooses to use the word engage to describe kind of the relationship between Mary and Joseph. And I understand why they're using that because it kind of helps us understand what kind of relationship this was. It wasn't like, you know, they weren't just talking to each other, you know, which that's kind of what the younger generation used to describe their relationships with the opposite sex. We're just talking, Dad. That's all. I was like, what's that mean? What does it mean you're talking? Are you talking, talking? Or are you just talking, right? So talking, talking is a whole other level than just talking, right? So thanks for humoring me there. That's not what's going on with Mary and Joseph. And, and in fact, I, it's more like marriage is what it is. The word that, that some translation uses is betrothed. And so what's, what's happening here is that most in this time here, most marriages were kind of arranged beforehand, and there was kind of a, a bridal price, so to speak, that was negotiated between the two families. So the groom wants this lady, wants to marry her, and so the two dads get together and agree on some kind of bridal price here. So once that is agreed upon, then they actually get legally married, so Joseph and Mary here are legally married. And in fact, if you look at verse 24, I think the ESV translates it as, and he took his wife, right? Because it was his wife. They were legally married. But in this time, there would usually be a year between the, for them before they would ever live together or even sleep together, which is just stupid, right? I mean... What a bummer. <laughs> uh, yeah, see in a year. Like, gosh, I'm just so thankful. That that's not what's going on today. Amen. I mean, I mean, there's probably some wisdom in some of that, but but here's and, and you're probably going, why? Why did they do this? Well, there's several reasons. Here's a, just a couple. One is that they wanted to make sure that the that the, the wife is pure, that she's a virgin. And the second one, depending on the price, the kind of the dowry, so to speak, they had to spend a year possibly paying that. Now, my point is this, and this is the point of Matthew, is that during this kind of engagement period or this betrothal, the only way you can get out of this is by divorce. You can't just say, hey, we're done. You're not the person I thought you were. Give me the ring back. Right? <laughs> it's like, 
That ain't happening now. And in this time, the only way you can get out of it is when there's official legal divorce. And so the tension, as we all know in this story, is that during this betrothal period, during this year, Mary's pregnant. And Joseph finds out. And Joseph knows, it ain't mine, right? And I don't know about you, but if I'm Joseph, that doesn't go over very well, right? And, and we can try to imagine this conversation. It probably went something like this because there's a conversation that happened here. Joseph sees that Mary is pregnant, and he goes and has a conversation with her. And how in the world did you get pregnant? Because it it's not mine. I know that, right? And Mary tries to explain to Joseph the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Right? And so some of us have this kind of naive understanding that the people that lived in the Bible days were just morons and ignorant and just so uneducated that they probably believed that, you know, so gullible. No! They were as intelligent as we are and as skeptical of things like this as we are today. And so did Joseph believe what Mary said when he said, she said, I'm pregnant by the Holy Spirit? Did Joseph believe that? You can, this is crowd participation. What? No! How do we know that? Because the Bible tells us here, Matthew records this story of him thinking about how can I divorce her quietly? How can I divorce her in such a way to where I'm not going to put a lot of shame on her and her family? And as he was thinking on this, he fell asleep and an angel came to him in a dream. And in this dream... The angel basically said, well, Mary's right. She has been conceived by the Holy Spirit. She's not been unfaithful. Now, the reason why um, Matthew emphasizes the Holy Spirit here is because he's trying to help us see something about the very nature of Jesus. And so when he says that, that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, it does not mean this, that God came and had sex with Mary. And created some kind of demigod, right? Jesus is not Aquaman, right? And I'm telling you, in this time when Matthew's writing this, this is all going around, not Aquaman, but Greek mythology, where this, this, this whole mindset that the gods would come and have sex with the human beings and they would have this kind of demigod. No, that's not what's going on here. The reason why Matthew is emphasizing that the Holy Spirit is the one that conceived Jesus is because Jesus does not have a biological father. He can't have a biological father. So if Joseph was his biological father, then Joseph passes on the seed of Adam. And all of a sudden, Jesus has a sin nature. When we see this in verse 16, it's kind of how he, Matthew throws these little gems that we've got to see here. There's a, there's a break in the rhythm. So if you read the genealogy, which is pretty boring reading, but I encourage you to go and read it, there's a rhythm. John fathered Jacob. Jacob fathered Joe. Joe fathered Asa. Asa, whatever. I'm making people up here. There are just, some of those names are in the genealogy. But look, there's a break in the rhythm. Verse 16 says this, And Jacob fathered Joseph and the husband of Mary. And what should be next? And Joseph fathered. There's a break in the rhythm. It's on purpose 
Matthew is trying to help us see that this is something unique, different, never done before, that Jesus does not have a biological father. He has an adopted father, and that is Joseph, but Jesus was begotten by the Holy Spirit. And if we don't fully get that, Matthew's going to continue to kind of narrow this down so we can understand what he's trying to say here. But look at verse 21. So the angel continues to have this conversation with Jesus, I mean Joseph, and he says this. She will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus. Why? Because he, meaning Jesus, will save his people from their sins. The boy's name is the, is the Hebrew name for Yeshua. All right? Yeshua is the Hebrew name for Jesus here. And Yeshua sounds a lot like what? Say it out loud. Joshua, not a trick question here, right? Yeah, Yeshua, Joshua. That's the English translation of that. And both of that, that name there means God saves. Or more specifically, Yahweh saves. Because it's the personal name of God. And so Jesus, that name means Yahweh saves. So, so follow with me, right? So what I'm trying to do is take this familiar story and try to surprise us. Because as the original readers are listening and hearing this gospel for the first time, they're being shocked by what Matthew's saying here. So follow what Matthew's trying to say. What is the meaning of Jesus' name? God saves. Yahweh saves. What is Jesus going to do? What's his work? Jesus will save. Okay. But I thought God saves. I thought Yahweh saves. But here, you're telling me that Jesus saves. So, is God saving or is Jesus saving? Exactly. Yes. Who is this human being that has no earthly father? Who is this son created by the spirit in the womb of Mary who was born and whose name means God saves. And Matthew gives us a more explicit understanding of who this person is, starting in verse 22. Now all of this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. See, behold, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him what? Emmanuel, which means what? It's translated God is with us. And I don't know about you, but this has always been confusing for me. Because the angel came and said, name him Jesus. And Matthew's saying, you'll name him what? Emmanuel. So what's his name, right? Was he just like always messed up? Ah, just call me Emmanuel. No, call me Jesus, right? No, you can call me Emmanuel, but most people call me Jesus. My family calls me the Lord, right? You see, like, it's so confusing, but what Matthew's trying to do here is give us greater clarity on who Jesus is. This is not just another deliverer that God is raising up to go rescue Israel, like he did with Moses, like he did with Joshua, like he did with Samson, like he did with Esther. Like he did with Saul. Yeah, I know Saul was a train wreck at the end of his life, but there's a few, few years there where he did pretty well. Like he did with David. Matthew's making a specific and explicit 
point here that this is entirely something different. This is not God raising up another servant, another prophet, another leader in order to come and rescue the people out of slavery. No, this is God himself. This is God himself who's taken on flesh and coming to humanity to rescue, to deliver That's what Matthew goes on and says. He says he's going to save who? His people. I don't know about you, but I want to say he's going to save the world. Why is Matthew not saying that? Like, what about us, right? Who are his people? Well, we see in Genesis chapter 1, his people are, he's from the line of David. His people are, are Jews. It's the nation of Israel. Well, I don't know about you. I'm a Gentile, and most of us are Gentiles. So what about us? Are we just kind of left out? Well, we see, because we got the full story here, that the the larger scope of this salvation does include the Gentiles because he's a son of not just David, but the son of Abraham. And it's through his line that the nations are going to be blessed, and that's specifically found in Jesus. If you look at the genealogy, then guess what? You've got five women in that genealogy, and they're not Jews, they're Gentiles. And if you fast forward and book into Matthew chapter 28, guess what Jesus says? Go into all the what? Nations, plural. Not nation. So yes, the scope of salvation is for the entire world, but Matthew is trying to do something here when he says Jesus has come to save his people. And what is he trying to do? He's trying to make a connection from the Old Testament story to this new beginning. Because the Old Testament is a story in search of an ending. That's what the Old Testament is. I know it's a big book. And probably most of us in this room have not read the Old Testament, right? But if you want to see kind of the Cliff Notes version of the Old Testament, look at the genealogy. At the end of the genealogy, Israel is scattered and they are in an absolute mess. And you have all these prophecies that are just kind of hanging out, not been fulfilled. They're scattered in foreign land. God has not spoken to them in 400 years. The Old Testament is a story in search of an ending. I mean, can you imagine not having deathly hollows? How angry would you be? Amen? You guys know what I'm talking about, right? Some of you are a little like, you know, the Harry Potters. That's kind of like a switch, real quick. It's like, whoa, we're talking about the Old Testament, now we're talking about Harry Potter. Like, all right, but yes, we would all be really mad. I would be mad! I love those books. They were fantastic. I can't imagine reading the, whatever that last book was before Deathly Hollows and not knowing the end of the story. It's like, I want to shake you if they did that. Can you imagine not having the last episode of Lost? And maybe some of you would think, well, I can't imagine because it's a horrible episode, right? It's like I have more questions than I ever had answers, right? Can you imagine not having Mockingjay? Having Hunger Games, Catching Fire? What's going to happen to her? Who's she going to get with? Is this going to really, you know what I'm saying? Like, can you imagine that? Can you imagine not having the return of the Jedi? That's my day, right? Oh, my goodness. It took me forever for that movie to come out. I was like, it's such tension. Empire Strikes Back. And he's his dad. What? Right? That's how the Old Testament story feels. And what Matthew is doing here when he says he's going to save his people 
he's making these connections. He's saying that Jesus has come to deal with the problem that has put this world in such a mess. And what is that problem? He defines it right here. He's come to save his people from what? Their sins. Sin is just um, moral failure. It's missing the mark. God had a vision for humanity that they would be a reflector of his image to this world. That they would love him above all things. And that they would love one another. That they would go and create culture and beauty and goodness. That was his vision for humanity. And we have failed. Not they. We have failed. And Jesus has come. God himself was not just okay with this world being in chaos. He wasn't distracted or disinterested or indifferent to our state. No, he cared for us. He loved us. He wanted to set this right. And to do that, he didn't send someone else. He didn't send another Joshua in text out, hey, go take care of this problem. No, he came. He took on flesh. You could touch him, hug him, see him cry and weep. He did that to come after you and me and to save us from our sins. So look, guys, this is, this is what Matthew is doing. He's saying, here he is. This is who Jesus is. And he's saying, look, if you don't, if you don't put these two lenses on, that this, this Jesus is fully God and fully man, and you, if you don't put both of those on, then Matthew makes no sense. We are to be pitied. And we're wasting our time. We're singing things that are not true. Why in the world, why we would continue to gather here if what Matthew is saying is not true? But it is true. He is fully God and he is fully man. And because of that, we come and gather every Sunday and remind us of that truth and we sing and we celebrate and we worship and we bow our knee before him. So that's this Jesus that Matthew is putting before us. He is God, and he has come to save you from your sins. So if that is who Jesus is, and remember, it's a two-way street, right? Remember, as we get to know someone, we also get to know about ourselves. And Matthew's wanting to invite us here. I want you to know Jesus. And when you're getting to know Jesus, you're also getting something about yourself. So if that is what's true about Jesus, then what does that say about me? If Jesus is God in the flesh, who has come to save his people from their sins, then what does that say about me? It says this, that I need rescued because I am a sinner. I need rescued. I need salvation 
because I am a sinner. Now, aren't you glad you came to church this morning, right? Well, thanks for reminding me that, right? I wish it had snowed this morning, right? So I had to come and hear that. I hear you, and I, and I do sometimes feel the pushback. And I even feel the pushback in my own spirit sometimes, if I'm just real frank and honest. But if, if I don't understand that fundamental reality of me, then I'm going to have a really superficial knowledge of myself. And I'm going to live a life full of confusion. I think the reason why sometimes it's really hard for us to acknowledge that reality is because we have these, um, what we might call these waves of moral optimism in our culture, which I think is primarily within Western culture. You go overseas, you don't see this very much. But you have these kind of waves of moral optimism. Back when I was growing up, it was kind of random acts of kindness. Anybody remember that? You can raise your hand, help me feel better about myself right up here. All right. Yeah, you know, which was a good thing, not bad. You know, there's actually a website, random acts of kindness. You, uh, some of you might remember, like, Pay It Forward, right? That was a movie. Remember that? Remember, anybody remember that kind of like? Yeah, I used to do the same thing. When I was in Ohio, I lived in a little town called Vincent, and we'd have to go across the bridge. I'd have to go across the bridge to go to work, and so every once in a while I'd say, hey, paying for the car behind me. You know what I'm saying? Like, okay, maybe that wasn't funny. I just thought, it, but stupid. But, but, you know, that's kind of like the mindset. Red campaign, most of us know that. And, you know, we got Toms. Those are shoes you can buy and support. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with this. There's even a, I don't know how new it is. I just found out about this week, and maybe some of you other people are more hip than I am, which probably is true because I'm very non-hip, old, and yeah, whatever. Um, be good to people. Anybody seen that? Okay, maybe I'm more hip. Oh, yeah. I'm <laughs> just teasing. I think it's about 10 years old, so maybe something that happened more out in the West. But you can look it up. It's actually a, a web, website, bumper sticker, T-shirts. You can buy, like, coffee mugs with be good to people and stuff like that. So, look, I, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with this. And, and in essence, you know, as a follower of Jesus Christ, these need to be true about us. Like, we need to be kind to people. We need to be good to people. We need to be loving toward people. We need to reach out to those who are marginalized and poor. Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm with that. But here's my problem. These are presented as solving the world's problem. When these are presented as if people would just be good to one another, then all of our problems would be solved. I have a real problem with that. Because I think it's hopelessly naive. Because it's, it doesn't touch the root of the problem. I mean, there's all kinds of problems with this. I mean, who defines good? If this is, if this is all we got to do to make the world a better place, be good to people, then who defines good? We live in a culture that doesn't want anyone to define them anything of morality. So who does that? I don't even think it acknowledges the, the complexity of the problem as well as the complexity of humanity. I realize this is an extreme example, but when you've got a mafia guy who will send flowers to his mom, love his mom, respect and honor her, and then at the same time order a hit on somebody. And that kind of complexity, maybe not in that extreme form, listen to me, resides in you. And you're telling me that we're going to solve the world's problems 
by doing a campaign, be good to people? Now, Matthew is identifying for us what our problem is, and our problem is not that we just commit sins. Our problem is that we're sinners. There is something broken in the core of our being. And yes, guys, look, in some ways we're more than just sinners. We are deeply loved sinners. And it's important that those two words are before sinners. You've got to know that. You are a deeply loved sinner. How do I know that? How do you know that? John chapter 3 says what? For God so what? Love the world. And we want to do hermeneutic gymnastics with that word world. World means world for crying out loud. Amen? For God so passionately loved the world. He sent himself. We know that God demonstrated his love toward us. When? When? When I decided to follow him? When I got my life set straight? When everything started working out, I became a little bit more of a moral person? No, God demonstrated his love for you that when you were still a sinner, he came after you. He came after you. You are a deeply loved sinner. And yes, every single one of us in this room are a mixed bag, right? We're both broken and beautiful. We are. We're both creatures of glory and creatures of shame. But here's what Matthew's trying to say to us. Jesus is God in the flesh. He has come to save us from our sins. So my deepest problem is not my spouse. It's not my mother-in-law. It's not my job. My deepest problem is sin because I'm a sinner and I need to be rescued at the core of my being. And that's what God has done in Jesus Christ. Matthew is saying that the only place that we can find rescue from this mess that, that we're in, that we caused, is not from some kind of campaign but in and through Jesus so look you can you can sit here and you can reject this you can and and, and in fact I think Matthew is what he's doing he's just kind of giving us Jesus saying hey reckon with it and and you can you can just say that's crazy I don't believe it you know, I don't see it, you know, I don't believe the New Testament, blah, blah, blah. All these kind of reasons of why, all right? Yes, you can. But here's what I just want to invite you to think on, all right? You know something's wrong with you. If you would just sit still without any distractions, you know that there is something wrong with you. Why are self-help books so popular? Why do you go to Barnes & Noble and they're just everywhere? Because humanity knows there's something wrong in the core of my being. And so I would just follow that question up with this. Then what are you using in order to deal or heal that problem or even to numb it? And how is it working? 
Maybe you'd say, hey, you know what? Lot's working pretty good. Okay. I'm not here to try to convince you otherwise. But my prayer is that whatever that is, if it is not Jesus, it will ultimately fail you. And I hope you find that out before it's too late. And maybe God and his providence has brought you here this morning to wake you up. You can also accept it. You can also say, I'm a sinner, and I need rescue. And all you got to do is cry out to Jesus, and that's it. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to fix yourself up. Nope. And all your broken mess, you can say, I need Jesus. And that's it. We always have leaders in the back that would love to talk to you more. We're not going to put you in a headlock and make you pray a prayer, all right? But we'll explain to you about what it means to be a Christian. Maybe you're really confused. And you just might need to start the conversation. Maybe this morning is a great way to start it. But if you're a Christian here, then um, I would say this, that this this work of salvation is not something that just happened in the past. It's also happening in the present. Yes, in the past, Jesus paid fully, not in part, but fully for your sins, all of them. And you've received that. But here's also the truth. I sin in the present. I think you do too. I don't think I'm alone in that, right? At least I don't want to feel like that right now because I feel very naked right now, right? And I need present rescue. I need present day salvation. And that comes, that comes with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God that dwells in you. And when you sin, you feel it. It's a prick, there's a nudge. And my concern for you as a follower of Jesus Christ, some of you have felt that and you've just dismissed it. You've numbed it. You've kept going. And you're shutting the mouth of a real gift that God has given to you. Because it's a gift from him to keep you from destroying your life. And some of you are going, oh, this is not a big deal. It's a sin. I can handle it. And the Holy Spirit, a gift from the Lord that's bringing present rescue, is saying, stop. Stop. Because he doesn't want your life to be destroyed. I need present salvation by by God bringing even relationships in my life, right, to where he uses those relationships to expose things in my life that I would have never seen. That's salvation. That's rescue. It's present. It's real time. And I need it now as much as I did when I was seven years old and I walked an aisle and grabbed Brother Walter's hand and says, I want to be a Christian. And in fact, I would say I need it more today than I did when I was seven. I want to end with this psalm. Psalm 25 is what I read on the 25th. That's how I do sometimes. I just... Get up in the morning, say, okay, where, where are we at today? What's the date? All right, let's, let's go to Psalm 25 and see kind of what the Lord stirs. And I, and I want to just read the last few verses, and we're going to be done. 
And I, and I read in this because I think it talks about the, the present tense salvation and rescue that this psalmist is crying out for. This is what he says in verse 15. My eyes, and it's not on the screen. This came this morning. Sorry. So I usually get the PowerPoints to Brad at Saturday. So just hear it, right, and receive it. My eyes are ever toward the Lord. Why? Why is that? For he will pluck, me, pluck my feet out of the net. What is that? He'll give rescue. He will bring salvation. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with, that, with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and what? Deliver me. Rescue me. Present day salvation. Let me not be put to shame for I take refuge in, in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me for I wait for you. Redeem Israel or make it personal. Redeem Lyle. Redeem Chris. Redeem Joe. Redeem Sarah. Redeem Israel, O oh God, out of all of his troubles. That's a cry for present day salvation that we're all in desperate need of. Let's pray together. So, Father, just right now in the quietness here, I just, I want us to be still. And I want us to listen to the Spirit and hear what the Lord may be bringing to our minds and what we need to be saved and rescued from. God, help us. God, save us. God, redeem us. God, rescue us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.